morning, church family. My name is Kate. Today's scripture reading is from Book of Ecclesiastics as well as the Book of Romans. So the first part of the reading is Book of Ecclesiastics, chapter eight, verse two to verse seventeen. Obey the king's command, I say, because you too can oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause. For he will do whatever he pleases, since the king's word is supreme. Who can say to him, "What are you doing?" Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the procedure. For there is a proper time and a procedure for every matter. Though a person may be weighed down by misery, since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out. People's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet, because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get who get what the righteous deserve, this too, I say, is meaningless. So I command enjoyment of life, because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun, despite all their efforts to search it out. No one can discover its meaning, even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. The second part of the reading is from Book of Romans, chapter three, verse twenty-one to twenty-six. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace 
through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, good morning again. Uh, I'd encourage you to have a Bible open at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. That will just be helpful as we trundle through the passage. How about I pray for us as we come to think about God's word. Let's pray. Our loving Father, you've caused the scriptures to be written for our learning and indeed for our salvation. So please grant that by your spirit we would hear them, that we would read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them. Grant that we'd embrace your words, that we'd receive their comfort, that we would hold fast to the hope that they hold out to us of everlasting life through your son Jesus our Lord. Amen. I use the uh, Barnabas Fund, a group that work with persecuted Christians. I use their daily prayer guide and in it you read about Christians in Myanmar. What's normal for them is that you lose your home, you're driven out of where you live and you find yourself in a refugee camp and to add injury to injury the military government thinks it's okay to bomb the refugee camp that you're hiding in. If you go over to India each month, it seems, a new state passes anti-conversion laws that prohibit conversion by force, fraud or allurement. So I guess if you're a Christian and you just kind of want to love your neighbour, someone might see you doing that practically and think that you're trying to allure someone and you start spending time with the police and looking down the barrel of jail time. Now, on it goes each day. And I use that... Uh, not wanting to sound pious, I want to pray for the persecuted, but I use it each day because I think it just helpfully reminds me how good we've got it, how good it is for us, what we experience in terms of authority and government and justice. It's just, I don't know, not normal. Not normal for many people around the world. Like, I don't know, we had an election earlier this year power is transferred and not a drop of blood is shed. It's, it's amazing, right? There's no civil war. We're incredibly wealthy. We can come to church freely. You can say Jesus is Lord publicly without going to jail. Wow. But I think Ecclesiastes picks up on something that we feel, that life is full of frustrations and riddles. Like our governments, as good as they are, they make foolish decisions economically. I think there's something about submarines here. Um, there's horrifying, at times, levels of spending and waste. You think of the, the decisions, like whatever your political stripe, right? Uh, a decision to allow, say, same-sex marriage or abortion up to birth, legalising euthanasia, 
or the way we treat refugees. Short-sighted decisions around climate or the environment. And there's the way generally I think the elite, the rich and the powerful, they do wicked things and they just seem to be made of Teflon. We live in a time when evil is called good, when, as verse 10 talks about, the wicked even seem to go into the holy place, or let's just call it church, and they receive praise and they might even get a state funeral. It's so frustrating. How can I wisely navigate uh, the at times foolishness of authority and the wickedness and the injustice around me? I think the teacher of Ecclesiastes, you know, maybe it's Solomon or a king like him, he lays out some wisdom for us in chapter 8. Wisdom that in a sense is aching for a bigger work of justice from God that deals with injustice and wickedness done under the sun. It's wisdom, but uh, at first blush it may seem a little strange, a little counterintuitive even. I think the temptation for the first readers of this and for us now as punters in an electorate is when we see governments doing foolish things, making disagreeable decisions, is to say enough's enough and in some places that looks like a revolution. For most of us it might just look like a settled disregard for authority. You know, we just don't think very highly of our politicians. But the teacher says three things. He says submit to authority... He says, don't give way to despair. And he says a surprising thing about enjoying life, and we'll come to those as we go. So first of all, submit even to the powers and authorities that get it wrong. That's the thrust of the first nine verses, I think. Verse 2, notice, obey the king's command. Verse 3, don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Don't stand up for a bad cause. Perhaps he's saying, don't start a coup. The king's power is real, especially in ancient Israel, it's somewhat absolute. However, I think he's saying our obedience or submission has a limit. The king's word is supreme, but notice in verse 5, you obey, but the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. And I wonder if it comes back to chapter 3, where he said there's a time for everything, there is a time and a place for us to speak up and push back on unjust decisions. You might think, how does that work in ancient Israel? I guess I can think of times where the prophets actually did stand up to their kings. You and me, we enjoy this incredible luxury providentially. There is a time and a place to deal with inept, unjust, wicked rule. I guess you could say it's the polling booth. Aussies, we tend to vote out the people that we don't like. We don't vote people in. But I think we need to be wise about our relationship with government. Submission doesn't mean you compromise or let go of your convictions. And I guess in my job as a pastor, I've had plenty of people bellyache to me about government. And I tend to remind them that, well, the New Testament writers like Paul and Peter, they say similar stuff to what the teacher's saying here, like in Romans 13, for instance. They're writing about a government not like ours. They're writing about the Roman Empire and they're writing about an emperor like Nero. I think we need to remember that submission doesn't mean necessarily an easy run. Like if Caesar or the state demands an allegiance that's 
compelling us, coercing us to deny our allegiance to God, we do say no. And there's a price to pay for that. And we do that because there's a difference, I guess, between who we, well, submit to, but who do we trust? There is a difference. You might have seen it in the news a couple of weeks back, but dear old ScoMo got into trouble preaching a sermon in a church over in Perth. He said, in, in effect, we don't trust our governments. We don't trust them. It's like, how dare he... How convenient for him, how irresponsible. But like him or not, I guess he's saying what the teacher's getting at in Ecclesiastes and what the New Testament writers say about our relationship to power. We submit but don't trust. And I wonder if that's a needed word in our time and place, which has slowly eroded God's place in the public square. Any, any kind of conversation about religion and faith and how that affects how we live Politics has taken God's place. He's the ult- it's the ultimate thing for people. It's the functional God that's going to help us live a good life or make us live safe and securely, so it says. But frustratingly, it doesn't do that. The king, the state, the politicians cannot give you what only God can. So the Bible never asks you to trust Mr Albanese or whoever comes next, but you obey. And for three reasons, I think, that stand out. Verse 2, again, because you took an oath before God, or it could be translated as because of God's oath to the king. Either way, it's a recognition of God's providence in all of this. Rulers are only there because God wills, and so, in a sense, insubordination to kings or prime ministers is actually you not trusting God. Respect for political leaders or authority around me, it's an aspect of my trust in God, in his rule and his goodness. And sort of flowing on from that, secondly, you submit, as verse 5 says, because you don't come to harm. Government is God's way of ruling on earth, in effect. He does good to all kinds of people, including his church. So again, if you think of the Roman Empire often beastly, but it enabled the spread of the gospel. So you obey the state now because it does good for others and good for you. Now, look, I've had people say to me before, I don't want to pay tax because it's like theft. (laughs) They're thieving from me. They waste the money. They make decisions that I find morally repulsive. Yeah, tax is the way we pay for hospitals and schools For an NDIS, my wife and I have a vested interest in that. And on and on it goes. It's the way in which you trust in God's bigger providence in things. You submit also because, as the teacher says there, kings don't last. Like, look at verse 7. He talks about how no one knows the future. Well, your king doesn't. And verse 8, you can't control the wind. And in a similar way, you can't control when you die. As powerful as kings are, they haven't got that one sewn up. I guess the good news is 100% of dictators die. Um, And just like there's no discharge from war, they can't escape the consequences of wickedness. So verse 9, they might lord it over others, but it's to their own hurt, ultimately. So he's saying, submit because this is not forever. 
It's kind of what Emma was getting at in the kids' spot. Uh, death does something in terms of levelling things out. Submit because a bigger justice is coming and we need to hold on to that thought. I guess, though, justice really does seem slow. And it's not just about politicians at this point in the passage as we're moving on. Uh, what about, as I'm calling them, the wicked winners in life? The temptation when you see people getting away with it is to give way to despair, to give way to cynicism and slide into sin, just like everyone else. Like, look at verse 11. That like, makes sense, doesn't it? When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, he says, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Courts go slow, crime goes fast. But the second piece of wisdom is, don't despair and don't get drawn into the way of the wicked. Or you could say, fear God. Like look at verse 12, although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, the teacher says, I know that it will go better with those who fear God. There's some worldly wisdom, you know, the old adage that says crime pays. Well, I've got a picture, I hope, that will come up here. Yeah, sorry to do this to you, but like <laughs> crime pays, eh? Yeah, it does. That's how it often pays. It often ends up with mugshots, a meth problem and face tattoos and a mullet and a whole lot of misery. Not to make light of that. We can nix that now. Enough trauma for us all. Um, we only see so much, don't we? Notice again he says, although a wicked person, now one gets away with it, but that's more the story, isn't it? Many are caught. And it's the contrast then with this better way of fearing God, of living God's way. It just means mess, less mugshots, less misery, less mess. He says in verse 13, Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. Their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Wickedness doesn't really lengthen the days of one's life. So once again, death comes along and levels things out. Wickedness digs its own grave. That's what he's wanting you to hear. There's one more counterintuitive bit of wisdom. Uh, the temptation in the face of bad kings and wicked winners and injustice is to get perhaps bitter and angry. And so this is where it kind of gets really strange and I don't always know what to do with this, but he says, enjoy, I think he says finally, enjoy life. <laughs> yeah, enjoy life without losing sleep. Or as I'm thinking about it, don't be a frustrated justice warrior. Like look at verse 15. He says there, so given all of the frustrations, I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun, you know, in this fallen, messed up world, than to eat and drink and be glad. Uh, in his commentary on this, a guy, Doug O'Donnell, says, while the wicked scheme against God and his church and each other, the righteous are to sit down together and praise God from whom all blessings flow. We are to say grace 
and eat up. Enjoy life and rest. Look at verse 16. He says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labour that's done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God had done. And I wonder if he's getting at how our bitterness and our anger can turn into this kind of restless work for justice, so restless, in fact, that we lose sleep over how unfair life is. Frustration just begets this kind of frustrated activism. And again, I think this is a good word for us. Don't hear me being anti, anti, anti activism here. I reckon Christians can be the frustrated, angry, bitter types over the way our government works or the injustices we see. Frustrated justice warriors, whatever your politics is. Uh, and again, forgive me, I might be generalising here, the people I've encountered who are big on justice and justice done now can sometimes be the least fun to be around. And I can be like that. That's why I'm saying this, I think. Uh, an issue that comes to mind for me was back when the same-sex marriage debate was on the plebiscite, and it might not, strictly speaking, be an issue of justice, but I was frustrated by the way authority was working. I felt like the whole debate was framed unfairly, like if you're against equality, what are you? Well, you know, I didn't necessarily get vocal. Uh, I got angry, and probably for less noble reasons, like I could feel like, well, progressive elite types are going to pull off something that's going to ruin life for the rest of us good people. You can change the definition of marriage and make all these kind of exceptions for religious groups, but someone's going to fall foul of something somewhere. And look, I can really crank up the catastrophe if you want, if you get me going. Um, this is going to make it impossible to teach the Bible. Churches are going to close. But really, at the end of the day, it was about how I thought this might hit me in the hip pocket and ruin my comfy life in a nice place. It's embarrassing to admit it, but I'll throw myself under the bus to make the point. I, I was less concerned, I guess, about right or wrong, about government doing right, but more really worried about me. And maybe some of that resonates with you, but also maybe some of the bitterness and aggro that comes out over issues of justice gets you as well. Do you get sour? Do you get grumpy? What the teacher's saying here may feel wrong. Shouldn't we get angry? Shouldn't we do something? Isn't he being irresponsible? Again, I don't think he's saying, don't care, just eat, drink and be merry. I think he's saying, you haven't got this all worked out, but someone does. Don't allow your face, as verse 1 talks about, which we, we didn't read, he says, don't let it be hard. Don't become so restless that you're losing sleep over what you've got little power over. Actually, the restlessness, the grumpiness, my many conniptions betray that I just don't trust God like I should. So how can you do this to close things here? I think all through the passage it's been bubbling away. Remember, kings will come and kings will go. Tyrants have their time in verses 8 and 9. The wicked might get praised in verse 10, but they get buried. And verses 12 and 13, fearing God goes better for you. Actually, not fearing God doesn't lengthen your days. 
Verse 14 again. The wicked get what the righteous deserve. The righteous get what the wicked deserve. That crazy thing, it's meaningless. In Ecclesiastes speak, that means it's smoke. It's mist. It's temporary. It's not forever. And that might be reason enough to enjoy the good things of life and not get overwhelmed by the frustration of it all. But we might have more reason than the teacher has to do this. We might have a bigger sense of justice than he had. And actually a justice that deals with some of the messy motives that are in my heart and the times when I get it wrong. What's unclear for the teacher in verse 17? It's clearer for us. There is a strange way that God has worked out justice when we come to Jesus. And it's what Paul is talking about in Romans 3. So if you want to flick over there now, it might be helpful. God demonstrates that bigger justice which Ecclesiastes is edging you towards. Christ Jesus, in verse 25 of Romans 3, is set forth as that sacrifice of atonement. Jesus' blood shed at the cross, it demonstrates, doesn't it, that God is absolutely, utterly fair. Totally serious about doing justice. The cross provides a very solid sense of the way in which death, which the teacher keeps coming back to in this passage, really will sort things out. The cross in verse 25 says Paul makes sense of why it seems like people have been getting away with it. Now why it seems like God's been out to lunch through human history, he's not been out to lunch. He says there, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He doesn't unleash the full fury of his anger because he's looking forward to doing that at the cross. It's strange, but it's saying justice gets done for you and it really gets done for those who do not believe, for those who do not fear God. So friends, you can get justice in a sense and there's some of you sitting here I'm sure today who've been unjustly treated. You can get justice as well when you think about the uncomfortable truth that often you're unwittingly or complicitly involved in the wickedness of others, your own, your own sin in all of this. You can receive God's justice in your favour, even if you don't deserve it. God does justice for wicked sinners in a surprising way. So as Paul says, fear him for it or believe, trust him. I guess, of course, though, the cross serves as a massive warning to those who perpetuate injustice. The people that Ecclesiastes 8.11 talks about, the people who think, ah, there's no consequences. The cross foreshadows graphically, I think, what people who have no regard for God will face. The tyrants, the powerful, the smug who think they're untouchable, they don't just face death, they face God's eternal displeasure. And that's going to more than make up for the wrong that they've done to others in this short life. It's that kind of justice that I think we need to keep in mind. It's a justice that you need to enjoy the good and not lose sleep about the unfairness of life. It's the justice and the wisdom of God, which is verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 8 suggests, could even put a smile on your face in this messed up crazy world. It changes our hard appearance to something much brighter. And it's what I need so that I don't slip into despair 
or cynicism or angry activism so that I keep on actually praying. I stand back from this and I think, well, yeah, my brothers and sisters in Christ in Myanmar today, they do lose and it's painful and it's grim. I really can't get my head around it. But what God has done through his son Jesus says, actually, no, in the end, they really do win. Your government might waste our money. It might make diabolical decisions. Yes, we might get more and more marginalised or discriminated against, but in the end... No, we really do actually win in all of this. God really will do justice. And he's really done justice for you now. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wisdom that the teacher lays out for us to live well and wisely with authority and injustice that is so unsatisfying. Give us your wisdom to obey our government we do indeed pray for our leaders. Grant them that they would grant them the wisdom that they would govern well so that we might lead peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness, enjoying the blessings that flow to us from your hand. Keep us from believing the lie that the wicked get away with it. Help us to believe that it really does go better for us as we fear you. We thank you so much for your justice displayed clearly at the cross. Yes, justice and mercy, mate. Justice done for undeserving sinners like us, but the sign that justice is coming fully and finally. Lord, help us to rest in that justice now. In Christ's name, amen.